Good evening and welcome to the German Historical Institute. My name is Andreas Gestrich, I'm the director of the Institute and it is really a great pleasure for me to be able to welcome you this evening here to this lecture by Sander Gilman. The lecture takes place uh, on occasion of the um, board meeting of the three, of the three boards of the international uh, Leo Beck uh, uh, Institutes or the international boards of the Leo Beck Institutes and they take place at different uh, places every two years and this year um, they meet in London and it's a great pleasure to have you all here. And it's particularly great pleasure to welcome uh, Sander Gilman, who's been elected the president of the London uh, Frankfurt Leo Beck Institute. And can I also say uh, congratulations and to you, to the new president, uh, Michael Brenner, of the international uh, board. So welcome to you all, and um, it's wonderful to have you here. And also as a sign of our continuing cooperation uh, with the Leo Beck Institute. Uh, I don't know whether all of you know, since the Leo Beck Institute, London moved to the, uh, to Queen, to the campus of Queen Mary. Uh, we have uh, continuing cooperation and we have our uh, Leo Beck lectures here at the Institute in central London and we are hoping to continue this next year with a lecture series on uh, Jews in the First World War. And so this lecture this evening is, uh, the, the normal lectures take place in sort of spring and summer and we are very pleased to have now an additional occasion in, in autumn and uh, to a topic which is, I think, very uh, important and uh, timely. Uh, cosmopolitanism is one of the things uh, that is certainly a key term for current uh, developments in this uh, global age. And I can, it fits well with the, with the uh, topics we covered here at the last two series of the Leo Beck Institute, particularly the last one where we had a series on Jews and Muslims in Britain and also other topics. Anyway, I hope you have a good evening here. Afterwards we will have a reception at the library and you're all invited to that. And I can now hand over to Peter Pulzer, who is the uh, Scheiden there, <laughs> I don't know how to say that, uh, president of the Leo Beck Institute, and he will introduce uh, Sander Gilman. Thank you very much, and welcome to you all. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A little prehistory, sometime towards the end of the last millennium, I was approached by a group of gentlemen wearing black suits and dark glasses, who said, we have an offer to make to you which we think you cannot refuse. <laughs> and when I asked what that was, they said, we have decided that you are to become the next chair of the London Leo Beck Institute. <laughs> 
And when I didn't ask what happens if I refuse, but did say, well, I'll take it on for three years, they smiled their sinister smile and said, <laughs> that's what you think. Three years became 16. And well, every now and again, as I endured a sleepless night for one reason or another, I tried to put my mind <coughs> as to who could relieve me of this ever-lengthening task. And then, some years ago, <coughs> Sander Gilman began to spend more time in London, to show an interest in our activities, to attend our meetings, to join our board and our executive, and very occasionally <coughs> to open his mouth in order to utter some irrefutably sensible thought. And so in the end, a consensus arose that he should become my successor as chair of the London Leo Beck Institute. <coughs> and he has held this position for over one month and looks none the worse for it. Though what he will look like at the end of 16 years, <laughs> I cannot vouchsafe. Um, he is one of these people to whom the cliché that he needs no introduction applies amply, so I will introduce <coughs> him very briefly. He has had an academic career of the kind that most other people could only wish for. He has held senior teaching positions at uh, Cornell, Chicago, Stanford and Hong Kong in almost all cases as a capital D distinguished professor uh, with a title. At the moment he is distinguished professor of liberal arts and sciences and professor of psychiatry at Emory University but I gather that he plans to step down from some or all of these responsibilities. He has spent time in this country uh, at uh, Birkbeck College and also as a visiting professor at my own university. Um, I won't give you a list of all the, all the uh, standard works that he has written. He is best known, I suppose, for his, uh, his book on Jewish self-hatred, but uh, one can also mention his book about the visual codes of insanity, seeing the insane, and he is about to publish Obesity, the biography, which should get, um, should become a bestseller among the non-obese. His topic tonight, his topic tonight is cosmopolitanism and the Jews. Um, I've already had a word or two about it with him. Uh, it emerges to my, if not his, surprise that we think in, along parallel lines on this topic. In view of that, I will say nothing about it, 
and leave him to say everything, and therefore it is my pleasure to call on Sander Gilman to lecture on cosmopolitanism and the Jews. The uh, men in dark suits who visited Peter visited me also. And uh, I must admit that I uh, take up this mantle here, um, both at the LBI, but also um, in terms of I the international role that the study of German Jewry, its past, its present, and its role as a model for the future, um, has with a certain amount of anxiety. Um, <coughs> I'm going to be speaking about cosmopolitanism. And I want to say that this comes out of a project which Kathy Gelbin, who is the co-editor of the LBI yearbook, and I have just begun. Um, and I want to begin uh, by, in a sense, looking out of the window. Um, in 1907, George Bernard Shaw, um, talking about or allowing Broadbent, the ultimate Englishman in John Bull's other island, the sort of forerunner of UKIP, um, to talk about what is really wrong here in London. You're thinking of the modern hybrids that now monopolize England. Hypocrites, humbugs, Germans, Jews, Yankees, foreigners, park laners, cosmopolitan riffraff. Don't call them English. They don't belong to the dear old island, but to their confounded new empire, and by George, they're worthy of it, and I wish them joy of it. In a hundred years, between Shaw and ourselves, being cosmopolitan has gone from being riffraff to being part of the new global elite. Today, the universal claim of cosmopolitanism of globalization and its surrogate, cosmopolitanism, is that all human beings share certain human rights, including free movement of peoples across what are seen as superficial boundaries of nation, class, race, and caste. <coughs> cosmopolitanism is a new buzzword. And it is now in a sense, part of our new globalized vocabulary. My old friend um, Kwame Apia, professor of philosophy at Princeton in a new book called Cosmopolitanism, uh, notes that the idea behind the golden rule is that we should take, each, uh, take other people's interests seriously, take them into account, it suggests that we learn about other people's situations and then use our imaginations to walk a while in their moccasins. These are the aims we, cosmopolitans, endorse. It's just that we can't claim that the way is easy. Now, I want to make a claim this evening that the discussion of cosmopolitanism is a complicated one and one which is integral into any understanding of the history of the Jews of Germany, the legacy of the history of the Jews of Germany, and more importantly, the self-image of the Jews of Germany. As with almost all of these studies, 
Appiah has a reference to the Jews. And it is, of course, a reference to the Jewish cosmopolitan without money. He speaks of the Jews in medieval Spain under the Moors and later in the Ottoman Near East, where Jews and Christians of various denominations lived under Muslim rule. This modus vivendi was possible only because the various communities did not have to agree on a set of universal values. In 17th century Holland, starting roughly at the time of Rembrandt, the Svardic community began to be increasingly well integrated in Dutch society, and there was a great deal of intellectual as well as social exchange between Christian and Jewish communities. Christian toleration of Jews did not depend on fundamental values. Now I'll note that, of course, these are two fantasies. Uh, Jews in a Muslim Spain, uh, if we want to use Maimonides as an example, and if we want to talk about Jews um, in Amsterdam, maybe Spinoza as an example, was not uncontested. Uh, it was a 19th century fantasy of the Jews. But what's really interesting is that this fantasy is a fantasy of the Jews without money. And it replaces a mid 20th century fantasy of Jewish financial cosmopolitanism. And who else can one quote in this but Alfred Rosenberg? And quoting Rosenberg about the ultimate Jewish Bolshevik, Karl Marx, who recognized that the age of technology had descended upon the world and that this required an attended maturation of the social framework. He, along with his followers, an international swarm of Jewish orators and literati from the cosmopolitan centers of increasingly racially degenerate cities, got together to formulate a set of social tenets for the despairing victims of an age who are so estranged from land and landscape as have to have been stripped of the standards for judging these disastrous doctrine of doom. Rosemary didn't like the Jews. Now, let me make an argument today that the tension, the real tension that exists in our contemporary notion of an elite global cosmopolitan is in point of fact one which is, has its litmus test, has its way of testing the world of the cosmopolitan, the Jews. Now, I don't have to tell you when I use the phrase the Jews, I'm talking about a stereotype, a fantasy. Rosenberg's fantasy, Appiah's fantasy. Um, and I'm going to be using that term the Jews all the way through this talk even when individuals who self-label themselves as Jews are talking about Jews. Understand these are fantasies, but they're heavily invested fantasies. Now where does this notion of cosmopolitanism come from? And especially cosmopolitanism and capital. It comes, of course, from the nomad. Now the nomad is Think of a group of Russian Marushka dolls. The nomad hides within the cosmopolitan and hides within the cosmopolitan in ways which absolutely mirror and form the notion of the cosmopolitan. Again, the negative nomad. Goebbels, 1935. 
Uh, by the way, an interesting talk, published first, not in German, but in English for the international press. Bolshevism is not merely anti-bourgeois, it is against human civilization itself. In its final consequences, it signifies the destruction of all the commercial, social, political, and cultural achievements of Western Europe in favor of a deracinated and nomadic international cabal that has found its representation in Judaism. He doesn't like the Jews either. But what we have to understand is that this notion of the nomadic becomes part and parcel of a self-reevaluation of what it means to be Jewish. One can quote Adorno uh, in Minima Moralia, 1951, that dwelling in the proper sense is now impossible. The traditional residences we grew up uh, in have grown intolerable. The house is past. It is part of morality not to be home in one's home. Now, such a sense of the modern nomad, and that's exactly what Adorno is talking about, turns with great irony all cosmopolitans after World War II into Jews, just as all nomads become Jews and all cosmopolitans become Jews under the Nazis. German language writers such as Alfred Anders in his 1957 novel Zanzibar or The Last Reason and Max Frisch in his 1961 drama Andorra turned the actual experience of Jews during the Holocaust into the symbol, uh, symbolic representation of a cosmopolitan sacrificial victim. Now, let me point out that nomadism, like cosmopolitanism, has been resuscitated. It's not that it just disappears. It becomes part also of modern theory. Deleuze and Guattari in A Thousand Plateaus in 1980 rescues nomadism. Not quite cosmopolitanism, but almost. Their nomad, which they never define, which is of course typical of Deleuze and Guattari, um, is the liminal and anxiety-provoking, the unsettled in a world of suppress, uh, supposed settlement, in Sedorno, in other words. But it's a state of ethical being rather than being, than being a being, unless that being is the off-cited Prague Jewish writer Franz Kafka. In such a world of flux, and I quote now Deleuze and Guattari, you have to listen. Jews, gypsies, etc., may constitute minorities under certain conditions. But that in itself does not make them becomings. Even the Jews must become Jewish. It certainly takes more than a state. If this is the case, then becoming Jewish affects the non-Jew as much as the Jew. A becoming mi minor mi minoritarian exists only by virtue of a deterritorialized medium and subject that are like its elements. Those are the new nomads. And this is the revitalization of the idea of the nomad now as the cosmopolitan. Where does this start? And it starts, as with almost all of these discussions, about the universal and the Jew in the German Enlightenment. It starts with Herder. And the ideas for a philosophy of the history of mankind sees the Jews among the many wa little wandering hordes as he describes them in the Old Testament. And they are the groups that create capital. 
had a list of all of the innovations of these nomads, among them the invention of trade by weight and measure, the invention of capitalism. But at the same moment, or at least parallel to this, there is a discussion about other nomads, let us say, the gypsies. And I'm going to use that term because it's a term of art in the 18th century, the Sintian Roma. And the argument that all nomads are Jews, Jews are gypsies, or perhaps gypsies are Jews. Wagenseil claims in 1705 uh, that the first gypsies to Goyne were indeed Jews who fled into the forests after having been accused in the 14th century of well poisoning, claiming that they had come from Egypt, a clear lie according to Wagenseil. Um, there they cheated the peasants by claiming to do wondrous cures and prevent fires. Eventually they returned to the cities and again became sedentary and declared they were Jews. But thieves and beggars had joined them and they continued their nomadic ways. For proof he claims that the gypsies were unknown before the 14th century and that the language of today's gypsies is full of Hebrew words and that their amulets use Kabbalistic formulas. Jews are gypsies, gypsies are Jews, all of it centers around notions of capital. And so it's no surprise that Marx in Capital argues, as Herder had argued, that nomad races are the first to develop the mon money form because all their worldly goods consist of movable objects and are therefore directly alienable and because their mode of life, by continuing bringing them into contact with foreign communities, solicits the exchange of products. Right? Jews are capitals because they are nomads. All nomads are, in point of fact, capitalists. There is a mirror image of this. Leopinska argues that the statelessness of the Jew, 1882, in the age of new nationalism, damns him as a nomad. For the Jews produce, in accordance with its nature, vagrant nomads so long as it cannot give a satisfactory account of whence it comes and whence it goes, so long as the Jews themselves prefer not to speak in Aryan society of their Semitic descent and prefer not to be reminded of it, they are nomads living as Jew peddlers. The minute the Jews say, we are Jews and we are nomads, they are no longer going to be nomads. It's exactly the opposite, but it's also an answer to the notion of nomads and capital always with cosmopolitanism, always with nomadism. If you want to loose the curse from the Jews, you've got to remove capital from them. Zimmel, in 1907, The Philosophy of Money, um, in an answer um, to Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, who argues, of course, that it's the Protestants who create capital, right? Um, argues that as a, role, as a rule, rather, nomadic peoples hold land as common property of the tribe and assign it only for the use of individual families, but livestock is always the private property of these families. As far as we know, the nomadic tribes have never been communistic with regard to cattle as property. Capitalism is, in point of fact, nomadic, and in back of this notion of the nomad is, in point of fact, the Jew. Now, you're going to say, well, but that's, Simmel never says that. But Zobart does, of course. And the Jews of Modern Capitalism in 1911, 
Uh, he writes of the restless, wandering Bedouins, who were the Hebrews, who established this promised land, an economic organization, where the powerful and mighty among them, having conquered large tracts of land, instituted a sort of feudal society. Part of the produce of the land they took for themselves, either by rent in kind, by farming um, it out to tax collectors, or by the means of the credit nexus. And you remember, of course, the debate among the early national socialism about getting rid of credit and capital, because in point of fact, it was an invention of the Jews. Now Weber gets involved in this. Weber is smarter than almost everybody, no, than everybody else involved in this debate. And in ancient Judaism, he argues against exactly the Zombartian, and I would even argue the Zimilarian view of the nomad as capital. He accepts the argument, and this, he, Weber's very clever, very Nietzschean in this sense, that there is a narrative not a historical succession of the stages of the three patriarchs, from the nomad Abraham to the peasant Jacob. It's not history, he says, it's archetypes. And he refutes in ancient Judaism the claim, uh, the idea that the nature of Jewish usury stems from any biblical claims to divine appropriation in Deuteronomy. He goes on, and this is really an important moment in which he says the medieval and modern money and pawn usury of the Jews, the caricature in which the, this promise was fulfilled, the promise of, of, of uh, Deuteronomy, was certainly not intended by holy promise. Rather, Weber reads the symbolic as the triumph of the city over countryside, which prevailed in every typical polis to early antiquity from Sumerian Akkadian times. If a quality of the Jews, Weber argues, it is one no different from the cosmopolitan world of the ancient city with its myth of agrarian settlement. In other words, what Weber says is, look, all of this stuff about romanticism is all made up. It's part of a historical fantasy embedded in the Old Testament. But this notion of the nomad becomes a powerful argument a powerful argument among the anti-Semites of the late 19th century. It becomes also a powerful argument among Jews. Adolf Valmont argues that the Jews are particularly nasty nomads. Thus we have the typical image of the private enterprise of the nomad that continues until today in the form of wandering merchants and dealers who cross the land selling junk, stocks. This notion of a wandering stock merchant I find fascinating. I presume he means cattle, by the way, and not uh, investment stocks. And thus rob our peasants and return on the Sabbath with their plunder home to wife and children. The nomad becomes the way that the Jew is imagined. Now, that's a very powerful notion then. The Jew is inherently nomadic. Even the highest law regarding the safety of the stranger, Zania, right, Gastfreundschaft, is not recognized by these Jewish nomads. 
this Jewish Yael murders Sarah after having been, tempt having been tempted into a tent and served milk. Trusting her, he goes to sleep. Then Yael drives a stake into his temple and mocks his mother when she comes to seek her son. Particularly nasty nomads. Now, this becomes a kind of red thread. Houston Stewart Chamberlain, um, 1912. Of all the histories of the ancient world, there is none that is more convincing, none more easily to be realized than the wanderings of the patriarch Abraham. It is a story of 4,000 years ago. It is a story of yesterday. It is a story of today, the Jew is nomad. It is this history of a degenerate, inflexible people for any change in the manner of living is said to have a very bad effect on the high qualities of the genuine and purely Semitic nomads. If the Bedouin of the desert chooses a settled life, he as a rule unites in himself all the vices of the nomad and of the peasant. Lazy, deceitful, cruel, greedy, cowardly, he is rightly regarded by all nations as the scum of mankind. He didn't like the Jews either. Spengler. Now this is now getting to be not only just a topos, but it becomes a way of imagining an encapsulated history of the Jew, now as cosmopolitan, but as nomad. Germany, according to Spengler, 1918, was in the grasp of inorganic cosmopolitan masses which had to give way to a new agricultural intuitive spring ruled by an organic structure of political existence. Um, uh, such views then turn into historical theory. For Spengler, um, what Spengler believes that the folk and such races never wander. The Germans never wander. They're fixed in time and space. The Jews for Spengler represent money, symbolically, and can only be overcome by blood, the inherited uh, inherent rootlessness of the folk. We have to come, of course, to Hitler. For Hitler, the Jew, of course, is a failed nomad. The Jew never possessed a state with definite territorial limits and therefore never called a culture his own. The conception arose that this was a people that should be reckoned among the ranks of the nomads. This is a fallacy as great as it is dangerous. The nomad does possess a definitely limited living space, only he does not cultivate it like a sedentary peasant, but lives from the yield of his herds with which he wanders about in his territory. I think I made the point, which is that nomadism is that doll within cosmopolitanism. And Max Brod, um, in 1916, uh, in an essay on the, on the uh, Eastern Jewish schools, um, states quite boldly, one should not inject us with being a centrifugal force in society and then marvel at the findings of nomadism and critical destruction in our corpse. What is important to understand and I really mean it is really central to understand, is that this debate around the cosmopolitan becomes also a debate about the inner nature of the Jew. Is the Jew 
a world citizen or is the Jew merely a nomad disguised as a Weltbürger? And we again return to Herder. The Jew of Moses are prop the Jews of Moses are properly of Palestine. Outside of Palestine there can be no Jew. Yet he writes, a time will come when no person in Europe will inquire whether a man be a Jew or a Christian. Jews will live according to European laws and contribute to the state. For Herder, as you know, the nation in question is not racial but linguistic and culture. But in the back of Herder's mind is the question of whether the Jews um, are a nation or merely wandering cosmopolitans, wandering nomads. Had the Jews stayed in the land of their fathers and in the midst of other nations remain as they were, even when mixed with other people, they may be distinguished for the seven generations downward. But the more secluded they live, Herder writes, nay, frequently the more they were oppressed, the more their character was confirmed. Now Herder is a great believer in cosmopolitanism. He notes that every people on earth has migrated at least once, sooner or later, to a greater distance or less. But he's quite comfortable citing Kant. And here's where this problem of capital becomes really interesting. The Jews are not cosmopolitan, they're nomadic. For every coward is a liar. Jews, for example, not only in business, but also in common life. Once you introduce capital in any discussion of the Jews, this discussion is poisoned. And it's certainly the case with Kant. As many of you know, in the contemporary discussions of cosmopolitanism, there is no one more frequently cited than Immanuel Kant. And it's very specifically, of course, two essays, the idea for universal history with a cosmopolitan purpose and perpetual peace that gets cited over and over again. Kant dismisses Herder. He says Herder's romantic speculations on the nature of man, in point of fact, are not grounded. He says that the use, Kant says that the use of the right to the Earth's surface which belongs to the human race in common, would finally bring the human race ever closer to a cosmopolitan constitution. And as you know, the Prussian state was not happy with this and threatened Kant quite clearly that had he continued with this transnational cosmopolitan notion, he would have more difficulties. Perhaps those men in black raincoats. <clears throat> Kant notes that we are bound by the historical record for the nature of the state, uh, uh, by our sources. And this is what interests me. That is, every time this question of cosmopolitanism gets raised, there's always a footnote to the Jews. Literally, right, in the essay on cosmopolitanism, there is literally a footnote to the Jews, because he's interested in what sources do we have for the nature of this national state. And he says, our sources for outside of it, everything else is terra incognita. And the history of peoples outside it can only be begun when they come in contact with it. This happened with the Jews in the time of, of the Ptolemies through the translation of the Bible into Greek, 
without which we would have given little credence to their isolated narratives. Tanakh only becomes part of the historical record when, in point of fact, it comes into contact with settled, non-nomadic civilization, the Greeks. By the way, both of those statements, of course, are wrong. Kant, Pauline Kleinfeld, uh, Kleingeld argues in a recent book, um, notes that cosmopolitan egalitarianism trumps cultural pluralism. He's quite happy to think about all people being e uh, equal as long as all people look like him, the inheritance of this Greco-Roman tradition. And as you know, he writes of Judaism as properly speaking not a religion at all. Um, it is in point of fact, again, as he writes in a long footnote, merely the belief of nomadic peoples in capital. The Palestinians, he writes in the anthropology, living among us have for the most part earned a not unfounded reputation for being cheaters because of their spirit of usury since their exile. Certainly it seems strange to conceive of a nation of cheaters, but it is just as odd to think of a nation of merchants, the great majority of whom, bound by an ancient superstition that is recognized by the state they live in, seek no civil um, dignity and try to make up for the, this loss by the advantage of duping the people among whom they find refuge and even one another. I shall not engage in the futile understanding of lecturing to these people, as Herder does, he implies, in terms of morality, about cheating and honesty. Instead, I shall present my conjectures about the origin of this particular constitution, the constitution, namely, of a nation of merchants. Now, Kant is talking here, by the way, interestingly enough, about the Ostjuden, about the Polish Jews. But you see what the difference is when you talk about the Jews as a potential part of the cosmopolitan, about the universal, that's fine. No discussion at all of capital. But once you start to think about the Jews now as a specific group, it's defined, this group is defined over and over again by the notion of capital. Grattenauer in 1803, writes this very famous um, screed against the Jews, answering in part uh, Dome's 1781 on the civil improvement of the Jews. And what's really important is the pseudonym he chooses for it is, can we say, a Kantian pseudonym. The book is published, written by the voice of a cosmopolitan. And as you know, those of you who have had uh, the stomach to read Gatanawa, um, that he is the true cosmopolitan, not those Jewish Menkindens and merchants such as Moses Mendelssohn, whom he uses as the horrible example, who extort their claims of their rights of citizenship to inflict damaging interest on innocent Christians. They are not cosmopolitan. They are according to Gartenauer, in the end, merely nomadic Jews using this claim for their own pernicious goals. And one more witness to this interesting problem. Goethe, the great cosmopolitan, the great 
advocate of the Weltbürger. Councillor von Müller comes to him and on the 23rd of September uh, 1823 and reports that Goethe became violently enraged, prophesying the worst and most dreadful consequences, particularly undermining of all moral feelings of families that rest in religious feelings, and his desires to prevent through such, uh, through such marriages a Jewess from becoming Oberhofmeisterin in this court. The Weimar uh, uh, law had been changed so the Jews and non-Jews could marry. That's horrible. That's a terrible thing to say. But listen to this argument. Goethe says that those abroad must believe in bribery in order to understand the passage of this law. Who knows whether the all-powerful Rothschild is responsible for it? In the end, all corruption flows from the cities, from Frankfurt, from Milan, from Paris, and has its roots in capital. It's Jewish nomadism that is undermining now the German. Marx, as you know, in On the Jewish Question, not long after Goethe, uh, argues that the Jews must see the nation as something alien to him by counterposing his imaginary nationality to the real nationality. The chimerical nationality of the Jew is the nationality of the merchant, of the man of money in general. His cosmopolitanism, of course, is a false cosmopolitanism. But the Jews make the claim of being cosmopolitan over and over and over. The Enlightenment permits them to think of themselves not as nomads, but as cosmopolitans. So when Wilhelm Rabe in 1864, uh, in the or certainly his best known novel, most widely read novel, points out that being German is a garment easily discarded. The Jew says, I have the right to be a German when I so desire it, and the right to give up this honor at any given moment. We Jews are indeed the true cosmopolitans, Weltbürger, by the grace of God, or if you will, by God's ungraciousness. Cosmopolitanism then is a very conflicted sphere when the Jew is evoked. Is it a good thing? Well, Karl Kula, rabbi in New York, writes that the Jew is a true cosmopolitan, but only disgusting and uncomfortable to those authorities who wish to rule and dominate with blood and iron, who destroy freedom, support bigotry, hypocrisy, and wish to corrupt eternal human rights. It's Bismarck he's talking about. All right? In other words, by the end of the 19th century, Jewish intellectuals can evoke being the true cosmopolitans, as opposed to these terrible nationalists, these terrible nationalists who play the anti-religious card. Not anti-Jewish, of course, but anti-Catholic. And the Jews argue that this is part of this biological nature of the Jew. The Jew is biologically cosmopolitan. The Jewish race alone has the capacity to dwell in every portion of the earth. Right? This is the nomad turn on its head. To reproduce and to develop without abandoning its racial specificity. 
Stammeseigentümlichkeiten, but also in healthier circumstances than the indigenous population. One can see in this the promise of God that Israel will spread to the limits of the world and, by the way, the fact that Moses was the first hygienist. This is the European colonial argument turned on its head. Right? Remember Conrad, what happens right, to Belgians when they go to Africa? They collapse. What happens when Jews go to Africa? They not only survive, they flourish because of their biological uniqueness as cosmopolitans. Now Herzl, in a complicated way, wants to have it both ways. And here um, I'm, in a sense, ventriloquizing uh, Michael Stanislavski. Jews are both universal cosmopolitans, according to Herder, as well as essentially Jewish, but because being Jewish as a national identity was de facto claiming universal values. Right? So the more nationalist you are as a Jew, the more universal and cosmopolitan you are because being Jewish is being cosmopolitan. Which, given the fact that Herzl believes in an organic biological definition of the Jews, he's a very much a Darwinian, is not terribly far from the quote I gave you a moment ago. He writes, Herzl writes, that it might further be said that we ought not to create new distinctions between people, he says. We ought not to raise fresh barriers. We should rather make the old disappear. Um, but men who think in this way are amiable visionaries, unlike Herzl, right? Um, and the idea of a native land will still flourish when the dust of their bones will have vanished tracelessly in the wind. Universal brotherhood is not even a beautiful dream. Antagonism is essential to man's greatest efforts. That is pure Darwin. That's yeah, pure Spencer, but who's going to quibble? Now, the I irony, and I love irony, is that the status of the cosmopolitan in his views um, in the 18th century, Fichte completely agrees with Herzl. He writes that every cosmopolitan is necessarily given his limitations by the nation of patriot in each who in his nation is the strongest and most active patriot is therefore the most active cosmopolitan. That's pure Herzl in the mouth of Fichte. That's pure Fichte in the mouth of Herzl. The early Zionists don't have an ambiguity about whether cosmopolitanism is a good thing. Franz Oppenheimer, much like Herzl, condemns it. Zionists are accused of being reactionary because we do not wish to proceed to an ideal that lays before us, but rather that we recede to an ideal in the past, that of the national state. The future does not lie in the emphasis on nationalism, he's creating the straw man, but in that which divides peoples rather than on the, uh, that which con connects them. Is the high ideal of a Weltbürgertum unzionist or indeed anti-Zionist? Today there spreads across the land a new culture that wishes to eradicate the difference between peoples. Today, Oppenheimer says of the Zionists, the German Zionists at least, we are the new Maccabees 
struggling against this utopian cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism and nomadism take on quite different meanings when the index is the Jews as symbolically defined by capital. You note that every time there is a defense of cosmopolitanism on the part of the Jews, the whole notion of capital vanishes. And when it is evoked to think about the Jews, the nomad creeps in. Now, such a history of the cosmopolitan points toward the ambivalence of these very concepts, the cosmopolitan, the nomad, when applied in our day to specific categories, whether the Jew, the asylum seeker, the migrant, the illegal, and the undocumented. These labels come to be internalized by members of these groups. This seems to be especially complex in the case of cultural producers who understand themselves as Jewish from the German Enlightenment states that will in the 19th century become Germany as well as those of the imperial state and republic that has its capital in Vienna. But this is also true of the diasporic situations of these people, whether in British, American, or Palestinian exile under and following Nazi domination of these Nazi states. This remains true in contemporary Israel, formed out of the ideological debates around Zionism as anti-cosmopolitanism, and debates around diasporic nomadism with its, when its cultural producers deal with Jews from lands other than Europe, as well as migrants today, legal and illegal, who has, whose identity comes to be Israeli or indeed cosmopolitan, not just Jewish. This project at looking at cosmopolitanism is a way of, in a sense, interrogating some of the underlying ideological presuppositions of whether or not a concept such as human rights, which many people in this room would espouse as a truism, is in point of fact as constructed, as complicated, and as contradictory as the relationship between those Marushka dolls, cosmopolitanism, and nomadism. Its history among German Jews is in a sense particularly interesting because there, in ways that are yet to be completely worked out, the poles of the cosmopolitan, the use of the nomad, come to be indexes of German Jewish identity with, without hyphens. This is the project that Kathy and I are beginning to work on. And we'll report back periodically how we're coming along. I thank you for your attention. I'm happy to entertain questions, objections, and further sources that I can look at. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was uh, very, very uh, interesting. I, uh, I, I wonder how your work relates to some of uh, other words on cosmopolitanism. 
for example, of uh, the recent book by Rebecca Bitten and also uh, I worked on it as well, which talked about situated cosmopolitanism, yeah. which embeds approaches to cosmopolitanism with a more kind of general tra uh, intellectual tradition. That while in the German approach, when it is not related to the nomad Jew, uh, but also the continental, I mean, when right. you talk about the lesson theory and so on, the notion of the cosmopolitan is a notion of the rooted cosmopolitan, yeah. which an apia in a sense also. Absolutely. Which in a sense it's an expansion of the boundary. It's mm -hmm. not the cancellation of the boundary, but an expansion of the boundary. On the other hand, if you look at the more British tradition, like Selfridges and others, it is the more commercial uh, notion of the empire yeah. in which the borders, the boundaries, have to be uh, submissive to <coughs> the interest of capital, the interest of uh, empire. And in this yeah. sense, it is not as a result of the, the nomad Jewish, but rather the capitalists, which are not uh, come from the British Empire and so on. And, and in this sense, I think the whole problematic of the cosmopolitanism and the Jews is quite specific to continental, as well as, of course, East Europe, studying the, the ruthless cosmopolitans, which you didn't kind of study. I, I would agree completely. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do is to figure out why in texts uh, where in contemporary texts dealing with the notion of the cosmopolitan as a way of resuscitating the notion of the cosmopolitan, I'm using Apia, the Jews are always cited as examples, right? Um, but historically, you're quite right. I mean, there is a French tradition, by the way, um, which is uh, in the Encyclopédie. Um, there's an essay on cosmopolitanism, um, and that's the notion of, again, this boundaryless notion of the citizen. But the essay on the Jews in the encyclopedia is unbelievably interesting because it complements that essay and denies, it's very Weberian, denies the Jews having any role in capital. And it says in point of fact, the Jews um, in this new cosmopolitan world are freed from capital. So what's interesting to me is when, you know, in this discussion, the Jews become a litmus test. Now, I did this in a book called Multiculturalism and the Jews a number of years ago, where when you start to look at the history of the concept of multiculturalism, um, what is very bizarre, and it's fascinatingly bizarre, is that anytime anybody talks about multiculturalism, the Jew is either the negative or the positive case. And I would be very interested, um, and I've not done this, to look at um, the British context um, which means the um, British colonial context, I will wager you that in these debates the Jews get evoked as cases. Right? I've not done it. I've done it for France. It's absolutely the case. Right? Um, in Germany it's obvious and easy because you can start with Herder. Right? I mean, it's very easy in Kant. Um, but what's funny is that once you start to look for this stuff, you know, it pops out in the weirdest ways. Right? In the weirdest ways. Um, and especially then when these concepts get, re in a sense, revitalized, when nomadism gets revitalized and cosmopolitanism gets revitalized, you say, well, they're getting rid of all this fascist garbage, right? And then suddenly the Jews reappear. And then, you, you, then you've got to say, well, look, 
how is it in this constellation which understands absence of borders, free movement of people, human rights, I don't believe in human rights, um, we have civic rights, we have no human rights, um, that the Jews always get evoked, by the way, negatively or positively. So that's exactly the, 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 the point, and I thank you, because it's, that's why we're working on this right now, because it's, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, <clears throat> the word cosmopolitanism is, is a very un-English word for the UK. Yeah. I, I would think most people would be hard put to know what it actually means. But I was wondering if really imperialism and cosmopolitanism, are they really basically, could you apply the same, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the same, what you said to the British, the, colonized East India Company in India, North America. The, the other thing that occurs to me is that, um, of course, cosmopolitanism was an uh, obsession of Joseph Stalin. Oh, yes. And uh, he accused the Jewish community of being cosmopolitan mm -hmm. because they owed their allegiance not to the Soviet Union, but to Israel, and they were spies through America. And complete delusion. But of course, that's what he, he believed. Um, it's interesting that the people you quote, nearly all of them, are German. Yeah, but well, for, for obvious reasons. I mean, because of this audience, right? Yeah. But you know, but you're right. By the way, I could have easily done, and I've done this already, um, looking at 19th and 20th century <laughs> Russian language sources, <laughs> where cosmopolitanism, when it's positive, by the way, Tolstoy, um, or Soviet theoreticians, not particularly Stalin, um, is the Russian Orthodox Church, is Marxism. And if it's negative, ruthless cosmopolitans mean the Jews, right? Um, that's the litmus test. And the, for example, the Russians are obsessed um, in the late 19th century with the nomads. And you would think, okay, well, they're. they're this expanse of people and they're nomads in imperial Russia. But when they talk about nomadism, they're only talking about the ruthlessness of the Jews. I mean, it's very interesting. Um, the British case I've not worked on. I, I, I give you that completely and I would love to actually, now you've given me a job for next summer, which is seriously to sit in the British library and to read these theories of, um, of uh, empire, to see whether or not this notion of cosmopolitanism, by the way, which is a word itself reintroduced. It's used, Erasmus uses it, but it's reintroduced in the Enlightenment. And the Germans get very antsy about that word. And they very quickly translate it as Weltbürger, world citizen. And you know the line, Lessing uses cosmopolite, Fichte uses cosmopolite, but Goethe is talking about Weltbürger. And Jews are not Weltbürgers, they're cosmopolitan. It's a very interesting line, linguistically. But again, this is the, you know, the Leo Beck society, this is why German Jewry, absolutely. Yeah, please. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for a really fascinating lecture, but I would like to play the very example. Please. <laughs> Even though I don't look like it, but um, I would say that in contemporary critical thinking about cosmopolitanism, there are different concepts that are used, like diaspora, um, uh, transnationalism, etc. And especially in the British, in 
the British context. Yeah. I mean, think of like uh, Paul Gilroy, who exactly. developed the whole notion yeah. of diaspora. And within this theoretical framework, I mean, Jews and the whole thinking about Jews is really very, very marginal. So I would say that in a way, your thinking is very Judeo-centric. Because even if we think about the world of today, even in terms of what Benedict uh, Anderson called the, the global exodus, right. I mean, the Jews play a very marginal role in this global movement. Yeah. I mean, you actually, first of all, you're right. But you've also given me the answer, which is, if you read Imagined Communities, if you read you know, Ben Anderson's classic book, when he is now talking about how you constitute an imagining national state, he uses Portugal and the Jews as his example of the transnational. Uh, in other words, you, he could have used a thousand different examples. And it's the weirdest notion, because Portugal integrates the Jews into their national project by, of course, exiling them. I mean, it's very easy. Um, and, and Ben, who's a, you know, was my colleague for many, many years, we had long talks about why he uses this very weird example of Manuel the Fourth of, of Portugal, right? Um, and for him, it was just a natural moment if you're going to talk about this constitution of an imagined community to evoke the Jews as this litmus test for what works. But you're right. I mean, there are many theories of diaspora, which is a different animal, I'm going to argue, than cosmopolitanism. And certainly that's true, in, and there's no black in the Union Jack, in the early uh, Gilroy, right? Where um, his litmus test is always um, Afro-Caribbeans, right? Where, for example, South Asians disappear, right? where South Asians disappear. What interests me is what the litmus test is for the theories. In other words, where the Jew appears, I see a kind of con consistency in terms of discussion of cosmopolitanism and nomadism. There are, of course, exceptions. No argument about there being exceptions. But diaspora, which I've not talked about, is interesting. Because the diasporic, by its very nature, has to be grounded in discussion of notions of galut. Right, of this biblical notion of diaspora, the Jew is the kind of ultimate Western Christian model for diaspora. But when they resuscitate diaspora and diaspora theory, the Jews are missing. And that's also an interesting phenomenon. By the way, uh, Jonathan Goyard, Daniel Goyard criticized Post Colonial. For exactly the Yeah, for exactly the So, again, I, I, let me say that I, this is not news. What gets interesting is where you actually start to look at these debates within these communities um, and how they get internalized. And this has been much of my work, which is not only what do they say about the Jews in France, what do they say about the Jews in Germany, but how Jews who start to think about their positions in these worlds begin to integrate or reject, as with Broad, certain notions which are, can we say, inherent Right? Um, one book that I've read recently with great interest is Ignaz Goetzia's Myths of the Jews, which is one of the great scholarly books of 19th century uh, Jewish thought. His discussion is purely about the nomad. And it's really quite spooky, because it's the mirror 
to these anti-Semitic discussions about the, the, the nomadic Jew. And Goldseer, of course, has an obsession with, the, with Islam, with the Bedouin, right? And so the Jew becomes, in a sense, the surrogate, surrogate good nomad, as opposed to all of these bad nomads. And you read Goldseer and you say, well, this is really great scholarship, until you start to say, but what are his underlying premises? For example, the notion that the nomad has anything at all to do with the Jews historically, all Jewish records come from city-states, right? Um, or have anything to do with the Jews of Europe from the Romans on is, is nonsense, is palpable nonsense, right? But it's a very powerful form of nonsense. So I thanks, thanks for that. What, can we have one more and then we can all go and have some food, which is always a good idea. And if not, Oh, yeah, very quick though. I'm more interested in the whole cosmopolitanism Jews and Muslims. Just a little bit, I apologize. Uh, I'm more interested in cosmopolitanism Jews and modernity. Yeah. And uh, how, uh, well, the, the Jews were uh, identified as the outsiders inside. Yeah. And also, they were entrepreneurs, but not only in the capitalistic sense, but intellectual sense. So I'm interested in that intellectual. Yeah, and, and there, again, these debates, which I find very interesting, the debates that um, in an odd way start with Weber um, and uh, the book on the rise of capitalism, Protestants and the rise of capital, and then Zimmel um, and the whole answers to Zimmel that take place you know, before and during the First World War. Um, are absolutely central to these questions because they shape the social science understanding of what constitutes the group that carries notions like economy, right? I mean, the economists talk about this as if they didn't have kind of models of human action. But we know, anybody who does history of economics knows that every economic theory has models of human action. And what's really interesting is that in, in shaping this argument in terms of modernity, that is between 1890s, end of the First World War, which is where all of these concepts get fixed. Vienna School concepts get fixed, Keynesian concepts get fixed, all of these concepts get fixed. They're all within this debate about Jews and capital and its origin and its meaning, right? And its meaning. Um, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Is it a necessary precursor to something better? Right? Um, and when you then read um, the debates beyond, you realize that this has been already, in a sense, uh, there's an intellectual fundament that has been founded for it. And by the way, I, I, I will go back to this because it's a debate within the cultural foundation of the state of Israel. It's a debate between Jewish socialism, between the kibbutz movement, between new capital, um, between the Jewish National Fund. I mean, in other words, these debates are not abstract debates when it comes to uh, the notions of Israel. They become real on the ground. And I'm going to end, because I want to really stress this, I think that they are part and parcel not only of Western European 
of British, of North American understandings today about the Weltbürger, about the citizen of the world. But I think they're also being debated still within Israel in ways that are not really resolved, any more than they're resolved in the UK, any more than they're resolved in Germany, right? Any more than they're resolved given the immigration debates in the United States, in the United States. So I thank you all for your attention. Well, Sander, you have thanked the audience. And on behalf of the audience, I would like to thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, I've spent many decades wondering not so much on why otherwise intelligent people get certain things wrong, but which particular things <laughs> they get wrong. Um, and one of them emerged very clearly from what you said. Uh, namely on the assumption, the widespread assumption, that the widespread attribution of the origins of capitalism to Jews. Yeah. Um, in fact, we all know that the people who invented capitalism were North Italians. Go a few miles from here to the city of London and you will find a small lane dedicated to Jewry. <coughs> A, a large thoroughfare called Lombard Street. Absolutely. And Absolutely. that tells you all you need to know yeah. about the history of capitalism. Thank you, Peter. Um, I think it's, there are certain, certain gems of wisdom which are encapsulated in classic Jewish jokes. And I hope that the audience will permit me to, to finish this evening's proceedings with one of them. Two Jews are sitting on a park bench in Germany in the 1930s. One is reading a Jewish newspaper, the other is reading a Nazi newspaper. The one who's reading a Jewish newspaper becomes more and more gloomy. The one who's reading a Nazi paper becomes more and more cheerful. And at last he slaps his thigh and laughs out loud. And the Jew who's reading the Jewish paper cannot stand this any longer and said, what are you doing reading this Nazi rag? Why aren't you reading what you should be reading, a Jewish newspaper? Very simple came the reply. All the Jewish newspaper tells me is how much worse everything is getting every day. I look at the Nazi newspaper and what does it tell me? We run the world's financial system. We own the world's oil. We are in charge of the world's newspapers. You know, it makes me feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.